Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, a shooting at the Super Bowl parade. Multiple people were shot at a Kansas City Chiefs celebration this afternoon. What we know as the story develops. Israel police release helmet cam footage of the Israel military's recent hostage rescue operation. And Israel Defense Forces say they are preparing to fight another war. Jason Perry reports. Warning of a national security threat is sparking concern. Details are vague, but the House Speaker is trying to reassure Americans there's no need to be alarmed. Melina Weiskup has the latest. Texas is preparing for a legal battle with the Biden administration. Ariane Pazdar brings you why the government is trying to stop the state from arresting illegal immigrants. House Democrats flip a seat, slimming down Republicans' already thin majority. Democrats now looking to flip the script on the border crisis. A huge lead by former President Trump over Nikki Haley in her home state. What new polling shows just 10 days before the primary, Iris Tau at a Trump rally tonight, and what's at stake for Trump at multiple high-stakes hearings tomorrow. This is NTD Evening News, live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. We open with some breaking news. At least one person was killed and multiple others shot at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade in Kansas City, Missouri this afternoon. At the conclusion of the Chiefs rally today, there were shots fired on the west side of Union Station. Immediately, officers responded to the area, took two people into custody, and also immediately rendered life-sustaining aid to those victims. We're still gathering information on the number and the status of victims. But like I said, we know that one of the victims is deceased. Police said an estimated 10 to 15 people were injured, but their conditions were not immediately clear. Missouri Governor Mike Parson and the First Lady were at the parade when shots were fired. They said they are safe. The Kansas City Chiefs said the team was on buses returning to Arrowhead Stadium. Police are expected to release more information on the shooting. Things are heating up across Israel's northern border with Lebanon, and an Israeli official says they are preparing for war in the north. This comes as the Israeli military says that two Al Jazeera reporters are also Hamas terrorists. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest on the war. Israel recently released footage of a mission in which Israeli soldiers rescued two hostages. Israel said they used explosives to breach the building and heavy gunfire followed. Israeli troops were then seen going up the stairs to the second floor of the building where they rescued the hostages. Those two former hostages said this on Wednesday. I want to say thank you to all the people of Israel and to the security forces who brought us home. I want to say thank you to all those who participated in this complex operation, to the IDF, to the security forces, to all the soldiers who made us really feel that we were being brought home. 
and both of them said they hoped the remaining hostages would be released. And in regard to a possible ceasefire to release the over 100 hostages who remain in the Gaza Strip, officials from the United States, Egypt, Israel and Qatar met in Egypt on Tuesday for ceasefire negotiations. But according to reports, no deal was reached, and apparently there was not even a date announced for their next meeting to continue the talks. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Hamas didn't offer anything new in their proposal. Hamas apparently still demands that Israel end the war completely before they will release the hostages. I insist that Hamas should abandon its delusional demands, and when it does, we will be able to move forward. And in another development, this week, an IDF spokesman to Arab media said in a statement on X that Israeli forces recovered a laptop in the Gaza Strip. And pictures on the laptop showed that an Al Jazeera reporter is also a senior military operative in the Hamas terrorist group. And on Wednesday, the IDF spokesman posted a picture of another alleged Al Jazeera reporter who filmed himself in an Israeli village during the October 7th massacre. We reached out to Al Jazeera for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Also on Wednesday, across Israel's northern border, Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon fired a barrage of rockets into northern Israel, killing one woman and injuring eight others. In response to the attacks, Israel Defense Forces reported striking a series of targets in Lebanon, and the chief of the general staff of the IDF said they are preparing for war in the north. Jason Perry, NTD News. Warning of a national security threat sparks concern, but House Speaker Mike Johnson says there's no need for alarm. This after the top Intel Committee chairman urged President Biden to declassify the information about the threat. As of now, details are vague. Entity's Melina Weiskup reports. House Intel Committee Chairman Mike Turner is warning of a serious national security threat. He wants his colleagues in Congress to review the information in a secured facility in Congress, but he also wants the White House to declassify information about it so that, in his words, Congress, the administration, and our allies can openly discuss the actions necessary to respond to this threat. While details about this are vague, there are reports indicating that it could be linked to a foreign military capability, perhaps involving Russia. House Speaker Mike Johnson today attempted to calm concern, saying, steady hands are at the wheel, we're working on it, and there's no need for alarm. And when asked about it at the White House, the National Security Advisor had this to say. I am a bit surprised that Congressman Turner came out publicly today in advance of a meeting on the books for me to go sit with him alongside our intelligence and defense professionals tomorrow. The White House will meet with Intelligence Committee lawmakers tomorrow. Meanwhile, the House has just pulled from the floor a vote on the reauthorization of FISA. That is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It allows for the collection of foreign intelligence on U.S. soil. The House has been grappling for months with how to reform this authorization. Some Republicans have raised concerns that it's been abused to spy on Americans. Meanwhile, the House has impeached DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The congressman who made it possible by returning from his help leave, Majority Leader Steve Scalise, is now pressuring the Senate to act. And if they ignore this, 
and just throw it in the trash can without taking it as seriously as the American people do, then there will be accountability and consequences to that action. So it's on the Senate. There would need to be 67 senators agreeing to oust Mayorkas for this vote to be successful in the upper chamber. Considering there's unified Democrat opposition, that's highly unlikely, but there are some senators worth keeping an eye on, such as Kirsten Sinema of Arizona or John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, who has recently been more outspoken about the issue at our southwest border. The Senate will take up Mayorkas's impeachment trial when they return from the recess later this month. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Wisecup, NTD News. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin hosted a virtual meeting on Ukraine today. That's just one day after he was released from the hospital following treatment for prostate cancer. The Pentagon chief said he's in good condition. He vowed to support Ukraine even as future funding remains in doubt. I plan to be in person uh, with you today in Brussels, but I had to return to the hospital for non-surgical procedures. I'm in good condition and my cancer prognosis remains excellent. And I'm really grateful for all the well wishes. The United States continues to stand four square with Ukraine. And America will continue to support Ukraine's principal fight against Putin's imperial aggression. Austin delivered opening remarks to the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. He addressed Ukraine's urgent need for ammunition in its ongoing conflict with Russia. The Pentagon has been unable to send weapons to Ukraine since December due to a lack of funds. The Senate on Tuesday passed a $95 billion aid bill for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. But House Speaker Johnson has signaled he won't bring the bill to the House floor, leaving its fate uncertain. Ukraine says it attacked and destroyed a Russian military ship this morning in the Black Sea. The ship was located just off the coast of the occupied peninsula of Crimea. Ukraine's Ministry of Defense released a video showing a large explosion followed by a column of smoke. The Ukrainian military intelligence agency said the attack was carried out by its naval drones. The Kremlin declined to comment on Ukraine's statement. Meanwhile, a possible prisoner exchange could be in the works between Russia and the U.S. The Kremlin refused to comment on the state of negotiations when asked today. It restated that such cases must be resolved in silence. The U.S. is seeking the release of former Marine Paul Whelan and, form and reporter Evan Gerskovich, both held in Russian prisons on spy charges they deny. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said yesterday that he had spoken to Whelan in a rare phone call. Russian President Vladimir Putin suggested in an interview with American journalist Tucker Carlson last week that in return for Gershkovitz, Moscow wants Germany to free Vadim Kraskovov. Kraskovov was convicted of murdering a Chechen dissident in Berlin. Texas is preparing for an upcoming legal battle with the Biden administration over immigration laws. Over 40 lawmakers are now backing the Lone Star State. This as a suspect in the Times Square attack on NYPD officers has been arrested again. NTD's Arian Postar has an immigration update. 45 U.S. lawmakers signed this amicus brief this week, supporting Texas in a legal case against the Justice Department. The Biden administration is suing Texas over a new law known as Senate Bill 4. Governor Greg Abbott signed it into law in December. Now, Senate Bill 4 gives Texas police the authority to arrest illegal immigrants for trespassing once they enter the Lone Star State. Now, the Justice Department argues that Texas can't do that because arresting immigrants falls under federal authority. But Representative Jody Arrington, who leads the 45 lawmakers, disagrees. Watch. 
not only is this president and secretary failing to provide for a common defense and willfully disregarding the laws of the land, they are obstructing our state's effort to protect our citizens and defend our border. Meanwhile, new numbers show that the month of January saw over 176,000 immigrant encounters at the southern border. That's more than any January ever before, breaking the previous record set in 2023 with nearly 160,000 encounters. And in New York City, a suspect allegedly involved in this attack on police officers near Times Square has now been arrested again. The NYPD confirmed to NTD that they arrested 19-year-old Darwin Andres Gomez's kill on Tuesday. That's in connection to a robbery at a Macy's store and an attack on a security guard who tried to stop him and three others. In addition to previous charges, the suspect has now been charged with robbery and petty larceny. Arian Pastar, NTD News. House Republicans again highlighting their focus on securing the southern border. It comes as the Senate passed a $95 billion security package that doesn't address the record influx of illegal immigrants. Our Washington correspondent Luis Eduardo Martinez has more details on the current legislative impasse in Congress. It is February the 14th, Valentine's Day, a day to celebrate love. But according to Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, Americans are not feeling loved by their president. House Republican leadership emphasized that they won't be forced to act on the foreign aid bill the Senate passed Tuesday until Americans' concern over the border crisis are addressed. Senator McConnell and I have spoken about this in frank sessions, and let me be clear here again this morning. The Republican-led House will not be jammed or forced into passing a foreign aid bill that was opposed by most Republican senators and does nothing to secure our own border. During back-to-back -back press conferences, Congressman Pete Aguilar, chair of the House Democratic Caucus, urged Johnson to bring the Senate's $95 foreign aid package to a vote on the House floor. Aguilar says Ukraine and other U.S. allies are in urgent need of assistance. Uh, it's very clear. If you want to push back against Putin, if you want to help our national security, uh, put this bill, this bipartisan bill, uh, on the floor. The White House's national security advisor had similar comments. All I can say is that each passing day, each passing week, the cost of inaction from the United States that's being borne on the front lines by brave Ukrainians is rising, and that's why we so urgently need to pass this bill. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson has, for weeks now, been requesting to meet with President Biden to reach a good-faith solution to the border crisis and thus move forward with foreign security concerns. The meeting has yet to be granted. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Luis Eduardo Martinez, NTD News. The Republicans' razor-thin House majority just got slimmer. Democrat Tom Suozzi is returning to the House of Representatives. He flipped a seat left open by expelled Congressman George Santos. Now Republicans are divided on whether ousting Santos was the right call, while Democrats just gained one more vote on the House floor. Here's a look at the reactions we're seeing on Capitol Hill. One less vote for MAGA extreme Republicans uh, to advance their abortion bans, one less vote for their uh, desire to slash Social Security and Medicare. We made a tactical error um, on George Santos. You know, it was, uh, the Democrats are playing chess and we're playing checkers. About last night was really about, you know, the stupidity of expelling George Santos. So I don't regret voting to expel George Santos, 
uh, he was unfit to serve. Perhaps George Santos being honest would have kept uh, one more seat uh, here in, in Congress. Their candidate ran like a Republican. He sounded like a Republican talking about the border and immigration because everybody knows that's the top issue. Newly elected Tom Suozzi ran a campaign focusing on the message of border security and a pathway to citizenship for immigrants. Touching both sides of the aisle, it's a strategy that other Democrats are expected to use this election season, including President Biden. Suozzi is not new to Congress. He served three terms in the House. He'll be sworn in later this month, shrinking Republicans' majority 219 to 213. This means Republicans can only afford to lose two votes on any bills moving forward. Coming up, a huge lead by former President Trump over Nikki Haley in her home state. What new polling shows just 10 days before the primary? Iris Tao joins us live from South Carolina. Also coming up, former President Trump to revisit a New York criminal court. He's planning to ask the judge to dismiss the 34-count indictment. Meanwhile, a Georgia hearing may determine if two prosecutors should be disqualified from the Trump RICO case. Our legal correspondent has the latest. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Former President Trump is set to rally in South Carolina tonight as new polling continues to show his overwhelming lead. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao, who's in South Carolina. Good evening, Iris. What is the latest in the race there? Good evening to, to former President Trump is campaigning right here in North Charleston about just in about just a few hours and it's just in 10 days before the South Carolina primary. We're seeing about at least a thousand people here and former presidential candidate and now of course GOP Senator Tim Scott was just on the stage campaigning for Trump saying it's Valentine's Day today and calling on people to show their love for President Trump. And it does seem to be the case here that many people do love Trump. The latest polling released today by Winthrop University shows that Trump is leading Nikki Haley by a stunning 36 points. And that's in her home state of South Carolina. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley has been on a 30-stop bus tour here in her home state and continuing to attack Trump today over his NATO comments. He al she also compared Trump with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Watch. Donald Trump is siding with a thug that has caused half a million people in Ukraine to be wounded or killed. That's not someone you want to lead our country, and that's not someone who's going to prevent war. But some Trump supporters who were outside today's rally told us just now that they think Trump was not wrong in calling out some countries who are not paying their fair share. Watch. They've got to pay. If you're going to be a part of something, you've got to pay your dues. I think that's fair, and I think they should. I don't see anything wrong with what he said. He's got too, much, too, too big of a lead. Um, she should just drop out. 
And Trump himself has also responded to Nikki Haley's attack, saying that Haley knows that she has no chance and is right now auditioning for a cable news contract. And while this race between Trump and Haley is going on in South Carolina, we're expecting to see a split screen moment on Thursday amid two separate hearings related to Trump's criminal cases. In New York, a judge is expected to weigh in on Trump's bid to toss his hush money case. And in Georgia, a judge is holding a hearing over Trump's team's claims that District Attorney Fonnie Willis should be disqualified from prosecuting the election interference case over her recent personal scandals. Meanwhile, on Friday in New York, another judge is expected to give a verdict on Trump's civil fraud case. And Trump today decried what he's expecting to be a crooked judgment and more election interference. So a lot to watch for in the coming days, of course, also in tonight's rally where Trump is expected to address more of them. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that update. Double stakes for former President Trump on Thursday. Trump is expected to attend a New York hearing for the hush money criminal case. And in Georgia, Trump's attorney will participate in a hearing that may determine the fate of two prosecutors. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has the details. After nearly a year, former President Trump is expected to revisit a New York criminal court where he became the first president in U.S. history to be indicted for allegedly falsifying records. On Thursday, Trump's attorneys will ask Judge Juan Merchant to dismiss the case. The case centers on allegations that former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen paid off a former adult film actress. The actress claimed she had a sexual encounter with Trump in 2006 while he was married. Trump denies the affair. Allegedly, Cohen paid her $130,000 in the weeks leading up to the 2016 presidential election. Cohen said he received reimbursement in monthly payments of $35,000 plus interest and bonus over an 11-month period totaling $420,000. The indictment claims those payments were falsely labeled as legal services. Under New York state law, Trump would be charged with falsifying business records in the second degree, which is a misdemeanor. But the 34-count indictment charges Trump with falsifying business records in the first degree, which requires the intent to commit another crime. So what's the crime? According to District Attorney Alvin Bragg, these payments were part of a larger scheme to hide negative information before the presidential election. He alleged this so-called scheme violated federal election laws. So one question is, is it legal for a state to use a federal crime as the basis for the felony of falsifying records? At the hearing on Thursday, Trump's attorneys will argue that it's not legal. Will the judge accept their arguments? According to PBS NewsHour, in recent weeks, Judge Merchant has been communicating with attorneys to plan jury selection for a March trial. In another high-stakes Trump hearing, Georgia Judge Scott McAfee will hear testimony about two prosecutors involved in a romantic relationship. The hearing comes after defendant Michael Roman accused District Attorney Fonnie Willis of having a personal relationship with her top prosecutor, Nathan Wade. The couple have admitted they are in a relationship. The judge is expecting to hear testimony that would confirm Roman's allegations that the prosecutors benefited financially from the case. Roman alleges Wade made nearly $700,000 and that he's spending his earnings on lavish vacations with Willis. 
If witnesses confirm Roman's allegations, Willis and Wade could face disqualification from the case. Arlene Richards, NTD News. In another update in Trump's federal election case, special counsel Jack Smith is urging the Supreme Court to let the trial proceed without further delay. This came after Trump's team asked the high court to further delay the trial earlier this week. It's the deadliest ideology in history. The bipartisan victims of communism caucus invited witnesses to reflect on their firsthand experiences under communist rule. NTD was there to speak with lawmakers. There's really an evil chain of, of communist nations that, uh, that includes China, certainly, but that goes across the globe. What This caucus was there, but it was never really active. Right. Then we are finally right. acting exactly. out there that we want really people to hear that what's going on. We really have to let the whole world know you know, what these communists are doing. The VOC caucus is spearheaded by California Congressman Michelle Steele, along with Florida Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Besides reflecting on the communist legacy in former captive nations, the caucus will also zoom in on the status quo of existing communist regimes such as China and North Korea. Congresswoman Steele said both her parents fled from North Korea and added, quote, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Coming up, many illegal immigrants are leaving animals behind at the southern border. Our guest says that's creating a public health crisis. He shares what he witnessed. And small businesses plead with lawmakers to stop the EPA. Quote, regulatory onslaught. They're saying the agency's new regulations are impossible to follow. We look at why when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. At least one person was killed and over 20 people were shot when a shooting broke out at the Super Bowl parade in Kansas City, Missouri. Police have arrested three suspects and are investigating the shooting. In a special election, Democrat Tom Suozzi won the congressional seat in New York left vacant by George Santos. This further shrank Republicans' razor-thin majority in the House. Republicans can now afford to lose only two votes on any bills moving forward. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner warned of a serious national security threat and asked President Biden to declassify the relevant information. The details of the threat remain vague, but House Speaker Mike Johnson said there's no cause for alarm. In the Israel-Hamas war, no ceasefire deal was reached following talks in Egypt. At the same time, the Israeli military said they are preparing for war with Hezbollah terrorists in the north. Ukraine said it destroyed a Russian warship in the Black Sea off the coast of Crimea, and a possible prisoner exchange could be in the works between Russia and the U.S. Illegal immigration at the southern border is creating not just a humanitarian crisis, but also an animal crisis. Many illegal immigrants are leaving behind cats and dogs along the southern border. Joining us now to share what he witnessed, we have John Rourke, CEO of Blue Line Moving. He is partnering with an animal rescue group to transport the animals to shelter. John Rourke, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on. 
Now, the border crisis is in the focus after the House impeached DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, but one part of the border crisis less in the spotlight is the animals or the dogs. Now, you actually use your moving company to help transport these dogs to an animal shelter. What made you start on this venture? Tell us about that. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. So uh, I, I noticed while I was doing cleanups, because that's what I primarily do is uh, cleanups on the border, so I've done three cleanups down on the border in Eagle Pass and Del Rio and also Brownsville. And every time that I'm doing these cleanups, picking up trash along the Rio Grande, I notice that there's just so many dogs and cats, stray dogs and cats. So I partnered with Big Dog Ranch Rescue. They're the largest no-kill animal rescue in the United States. They're based out of Palm Beach County. I reached out to them and said, I'm not quite sure if you guys know about all the you know stray and and uh, abused animals that are all along the southern border, and they weren't aware of it. So I made them aware through videos and pictures that I've taken, and we partnered together to go to Eagle Pass and go to Colony Ridge, those kinds of places, to rescue dogs that are left behind by illegal aliens that bring their pets with them. A lot of times they bring their pets with them for protection. Uh, they bring their pets with them because they can't leave their pets. They just don't want to leave them behind, and unfortunately they run into a border patrol agent and the agent tells them, Hey, you can't bring the pets into the facility. So they let the animals go. And a lot of those uh, animals are not spayed or neutered. So they reproduce over and over again. And it's really become like a public health crisis down there in Texas with the amount of, of animals alive and dead. There's lots of dead animals all over the place being hit by car, being hit with machetes and shot with guns and just, just really brutal stuff. You know, because they're hungry. They're going on people's properties. They're trying to eat their chickens and their goats. And so they're coming out of their house with machetes. And in one case, a, a pot of boiling oil was thrown on a dog. So it's just, just absolutely um, abuse and abandonment. And it's out of control. And the state of Texas really needs to do something about it. And in your estimates, how many dogs are left along the border? And in what state are they left? Um, so the... The vast majority that I've seen, uh, I've been in Texas along the southern border, and I've seen thousands of dogs myself, strays that, A, we couldn't rescue because they just were too skittish or they, you know, they were feral and they wouldn't let us get close. While you're driving down the road at any given time, if you live in South Texas, you know that you can see packs of dogs running down the streets all the time. They're in every city. They're, you know, they're by the border. They're away from the border. There's just so many. I would estimate that there's tens of thousands along the southern border from Texas to California, if Eagle Pass and Del Rio and Brownsville and places like that are any example of what other border towns are like, which I know that they are, then there are tens of thousands of dogs and cats all over the border. On that note, you've said before that this border crisis requires the National Guard to be activated. How can they help give us a sense, expand on that for us? Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm retired from the Army myself, so I understand a little bit about what goes into something like that. So the, they have a veterinary corps where they have veterinarians and vet techs that um, take care of the canine working dogs that the military has. They take care of the Border Patrol canine working dogs. So, you know, their their schoolhouse is in uh, Fort Sam Houston, which I believe is right outside San Antonio. So there are several uh, veterinarians and vet techs, people that could immediately provide assistance to some of these hard hit areas where there are a lot of, of, of stray dogs um, that need, you know, it's not that they're just stray and think that this has become so big that the government has to step in and use some of the money that Texas pays in taxes 
to clean up their neighborhoods. It is a public health crisis. You cannot have dead animals all over the roads in communities throughout Texas. That is what happens in third world countries. That does not take place in the United States of America, but it is, and it's overwhelming in Texas, and it needs something needs to be done, and that's what I believe would um, would uh, curb you know curb the population of dogs. And given the crisis unfolding at the border, whether that's human or the animals here, what is the solution then? I think there has to be a mass sterilization project that needs to take place. I think the state of Texas should issue out grants to some of the larger dog rescues um, so they can build out rescues in the state of Texas to handle the amount of dogs that, you know, once they're sterilized, they have to recover somewhere. Um, I think that, the, but the, the real key is you got to sterilize the dogs. They have to be spayed. They have to be neutered. Otherwise, they're going to continue to reproduce and it will never end. Um, so that's, I think that's the major thing. Uh, and then working with private, you know, working with the private ventures and nonprofits to try and get the dogs off the streets permanently. John Rourke, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. For more on the border crisis, catch NTD Good Morning tomorrow bright and early at 7 a.m. Eastern. Evelyn Lee will be joined by Republican Senate candidate Carrie Lake to talk about the influx of illegal immigration at the Arizona border and the policies she thinks should be in place to combat it. The Northeast could be bracing for even more snow later this week. Another winter storm is expected to hit the region by tomorrow. A winter storm system is beginning to develop this morning in the upper Midwest. Winter storm warnings are in effect for parts of South Dakota and Minnesota. The storm system is expected to push into the Great Lakes region overnight and eventually reach the northeast by Thursday afternoon. Forecasters say parts of New England could see several inches of snow. This comes as parts of the region already saw the heaviest snow in years yesterday. A man was killed in Pennsylvania after his snowmobile crashed. Tuesday's snowstorm also caused school closures and flight cancellations. Small businesses say a new wave of regulations from the Environmental Protection Agency could wipe them out. They pleaded with Congress today to stop what they called a regulatory onslaught. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. I'm not quite sure they want to wipe us out, but it definitely feels that way. Cy Wagner runs a small family oil and gas business in rural Texas. She told lawmakers Wednesday that a new wave of EPA regulations will be so burdensome, it feels like there's a big target on her back. My parents, my grandparents say to me, I, I, I can't believe that this is happening in our great country. I can't believe that they're making it so hard for us to feed the world and fuel the world and do it cleaner and better than anywhere else in the world. Amen. Republican lawmakers said the EPA is trying to force out fossil fuels and force in renewable energy. This agency has taken a radical approach of environmental extremism over uh, practical policies to promote the environment. In some of the most extreme examples, entire industries would be regulated out of existence. The National Association of Manufacturers said it's urgent to halt what it called a regulatory onslaught. Spokesperson Brandon Ferris said current regulations already cost the average company $13,000 per employee per year. He said the new wave is overreaching and burdensome. They are so close to zero that they are unachievable. So yes, there does not have to be a trade-off. We can have clean air and we can have a wonderful economy, but we cannot have it with these regulations. Ferris said the EPA isn't listening to the manufacturers' concerns. Not only would smaller manufacturers be wiped out, 
Ferris said America's energy would be in danger. And they have to, within 10 years, have widespread deployment of carbon capture and hydrogen. Both of those are wonderful technologies, but they're not available at the scale needed for this. And what will happen in those 10 years is that 60% of our power generation will shut down. And so bills will go up trying to meet these, but also we'll have widespread power outages. Ferris said that lawmakers should lower the regulatory burden on smaller businesses. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Coming up, did you know there is currently no regulation in the U.S. that limits the number of times donor sperm can be used to create children? Our guest says the fertility industry is very loosely regulated, resulting in serious problems. In NBA news, how close was LeBron James to being traded last week? Dave Martin joins us to discuss the what-ifs. And Valentine's Day is a busy one for Miami International Airport. There's no time to stop and smell the roses as officials process millions of incoming flowers. We'll have that and more after the break. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A CNN report is going viral for bringing to light the loosely regulated nature of the U.S. fertility industry. It turns out there are currently no regulations in the U.S. that limit the number of times donor sperm can be used to create children. Joining us now to explore the dangers of the fertility industry, we have Emma Waters. She's a Heritage Foundation Research Associate on Life, Religion and Family and a visiting fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. Emma Waters, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Of course, it's great to be here. Now, a CNN piece is making headlines. It's titled, I Slept With My Half-Sibling, Woman's Horror Story Reflects Loosely Regulated Nature of the U.S. Fertility Industry. How does this even happen? Yeah, so this is the outcome of the bizarre and unregulated fertility industry today. So this woman in particular was conceived using donor sperm, an anonymous donor sperm at that. So after joking for many years that she had nothing in common with her father, no looks, no personality similarities, she took a 23andMe DNA test that's actually been revolutionizing the way that people think about their ancestry and also discover these unknown siblings. And to her horror and surprise, she discovered that she had countless half-siblings including someone that she actually dated in high school. Gosh, now how common or widespread is this phenomenon or even is, is there enough research to even know? Yeah, it's a really tricky question. Again, the fertility industry is so unregulated. We have very few statistics on exactly how many children are conceived with donor egg and sperm. So we know that about 2% of all births in the United States are due to in vitro fertilization, which is the most common form of reproductive technology. But when it comes to these donor scenarios, we have no idea. Some donors conceive over 100 or even 200 children, and sometimes the donors never see the light of day. Now, it was recently discovered that data from a Dutch sperm bank that closed in 2004 has gone missing and that some of the men were able to father far more children than regulations permitted. That's raising concerns over accidental incest. Now, tell us, what is the state of regulation in the U.S. fertility industry? 
Yeah, so in the United States, we don't have any regulation that limits the number of times sperm donor uh, donor sperm can be used to create children. Um, so this has actually been a really big push to highlight countries like Norway, Germany, or the UK that actually limit the number of times uh, a person can be the father or the mother through a donor conception method. Um, but yeah, like I said, in the United States, we actually have very little uh, regulation that limits this practice at all. And given that, is there any regulation in the works or what regulation do we need to prevent this accidental incest from occurring? <laughs> yeah, this is a great question. So there are a few things. Um, the state of Colorado has actually banned all anonymous sperm and egg donation so that if a child is created using a sperm and egg that does not belong to the mother or father, the child has the right to know who that person is and therefore who their potential half-siblings or ha are. Um, there's another movement too to actually make fertility fraud, um, a punishable crime. And so this is embedded in the CNN story where it talked about fertility doctors actually using their own sperm, not the sperm that the family selected, in order to impregnate the woman, um, which is a very bizarre and very violating scenario where in many cases children thought that their father was their biological father, only to find out decades later that they actually have no connection to him. So many states have actually worked to penalize fertility fraud. And there's also federal level regulations. Uh, regulations that are hoping to accomplish the same thing. And given what we are seeing here when it comes to overcoming this issue, do you think there needs to be a cultural shift when it comes to discussing this, especially since fertility is a very sensitive topic? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think like the primary thing to keep in mind here is that our our orientation towards children should be viewing children as a gift, not a right that adults have. And so when we do that, that actually shifts our thinking so that we don't view these technologies as something that we have a right to, that we can use in whatever way possible in order to conceive a child. But it will actually cause us to think, what is best for the child in this situation? And so if we frame our legislation and even our cultural conversations around this question of what does the child need ultimately in order to thrive. I think that you'll see people move away from donor insemination. Um, there's this inherent need among children, right, to know who their biological mother and father is, to know where they're coming from and even know their potential siblings. And if you keep that first and foremost, these sorts of practices aren't actually helping children as much as they are maybe helping adults overcome the difficulties that they have. So I think that's a that's a first shift that we should really keep in mind um, is this child first approach to our fertility problems. Emma Waters, thank you so much for your time. Of course, thank you. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the NBA's trade deadline passed last week without any major trades. Though one team did inquire about LeBron James. Now, wouldn't it be unusual for him to be traded? Yeah, for sure. But there were signs that he might have been open to it. You know, ESPN was the one that was reporting that it was Golden State reached out to the Lakers to see if a trade was possible. It didn't sound like the Lakers actually wanted to trade him, but they checked with him and his agent. The, the answer was no. Now, there had been a perception that he could be dealt because the Lakers are struggling and LeBron isn't signed beyond next season. Plus, he sent out an unusual tweet a couple weeks ago with just an hourglass emoji that made pe most people think he wanted out. Now, despite him getting up there in age, I think he's 39 now, he's still an elite offensive player. I mean, he's 15th in the league in scoring, 8th in assists, plus his 7 rebounds a game or 2nd on his own team. Now, it would have been interesting to pair him with his former foes, Steph Curry and Draymond Green in Golden State, who are actually behind them in the standings. Uh, they're old too, but you know, maybe together it could have worked, but we'll never know now. Oh, now shifting gears to the Super Bowl, one of the more memorable replays was when Travis Kelsey bumped his head coach Andy Reid while screaming at him. Now, is this an act that could have warranted disciplinary action? 
Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes just screaming at your coach warrants it, let alone bumping him. So I was a little surprised nothing was done at the time. Um, sometimes a coach might at least sit the player for a few, play, few plays just to calm them down a bit as a bit of a disciplinary action. But they, those two have known each other for like 10 years. In any case, Reed seemed to indicate it looked worse than it was that Kelsey just caught him off balance. Now, Kelsey actually addressed the incident, though, on his podcast with his brother, Jason. Jason actually told him he crossed the line with it. Travis agreed, said he immediately regretted it when it happened. He also explained, though, that Reed came over to him afterwards, which Kelsey thought that means, you know, I'm going to get yelled at. But instead, Reed told him he loved his passion and that he reminded him, you know, there's cameras all over the place here. So he said Reed's calm reaction actually made him want to play better. Uh, I think he's probably fortunate, though, that nothing else came of it. Well, now in another development in the aftermath of the Super Bowl, the 49ers have fired defensive coordinator Steve Wilkes. Now, was this an expected move? Now, I'm not sure it was expected, but you could see him and head coach Kyle Shanahan were not on the same page in the Super Bowl. And their defense was really criticized throughout the playoffs, really. But back to the Super Bowl, the Niners shut down Kansas City's offense in the first half. Just three points allowed. But the tide started to turn after halftime, really. And then in overtime, I thought CBS announcer Tony Romo did a really good job pointing out what their defense was doing in not coming after Patrick Mahomes, which with much pressure. Specifically, there was a second down play late in overtime in San Francisco territory where Shanahan called a timeout. And when they came back, it, they had a much more aggressive defensive play called. Uh, in any case, five players later, the Chiefs were in the end zone. That was game over. Now, apparently, we were not given a reason for the firing, but this was his first season there, and it just wasn't a good fit, I guess. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. Here's a fun fact for Valentine's Day. Did you know that 90% of Valentine's Day flowers come from South America? They get screened for foreign pests at airports so that people can safely enjoy them. Here's what the process looks like. While Valentine's Day may not be known as a busy time for air travel, it's a busy time at Miami International Airport. Many of the nation's fresh cut flowers arrive from South America. According to the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, about 90% of the roses and fresh-cut flowers sold for Valentine's Day in the U.S. come through Miami on their journey to florists and supermarkets across the U.S. and Canada. That equates to some 48,000 tons of flowers passing through Miami. This season, we transferred around 460 million flowers from Ecuador and Colombia. Most of them are hot roses, so three hundred million roses from those countries to Valentine's. So it's oh, those are huge numbers, almost one flower per each American living here. Some of the exported flowers include roses and carnations from Bogota, pompons, hydrangeas and chrysanthemums from Medellin, and roses and carnations from Quito. The Valentine season actually started in mid-January and ends Wednesday. During those three weeks, flowers arrived in Miami on some 300 flights. Our mission here is to avoid and stop any possible exotic pests, plant exotic pests to establish in the United States. Also, this also include animal diseases. According to the airport's port director, exotic pests and foreign animal diseases have cost the U.S. $120 billion annually in economic and environmental losses. And once the Valentine's rush is over, everyone involved can take a quick breath before planning begins for the next big flower day in the U.S., Mother's Day in May. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.